I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome to Play Me, your ticket to some of the hottest shows by award-winning writers. We are back with an interview with playwright David Paquette and script translator Liana Brody, the team behind the award-winning show Wildfire. Wildfire is the hit play that burned up the stage in 2022 at the Factory Theatre. It featured some of the most engaging characters we've come across, along with dazzling language and evocative imagery. The story centers around three triplets, Claudia, Claudette, and Claudine, who all share a troubled past, but each sister copes with it in their own way. They do what they can to survive, sometimes by baking cookies, sometimes by playing fantasy games, and sometimes by smashing a hammer into a TV. The play features brilliant performances by Zorana Sadiq, Sue Garay, and Paul Dunn. Laura, you had a chance to talk to playwright David Paquette and translator Leanna Brody. Yeah, it was really interesting to learn how this play was inspired by David's genealogy research into his own family's background and how Liana not only had to adapt the play's language from French to English, but she also had to adjust the play for an Anglo theater audience, which it turns out is quite different from a francophone one. They also have some really great thoughts on what it means to be a writer, so I hope you listen all the way to the end. Here is Laura's conversation with playwright David Paquette, who is in Montreal, and translator Liana Brody, who is in Vancouver. David, I just love these characters that you've crafted for Wildfire. They're startling and wonderfully weird and so vulnerable, and I just wonder, where did they come from? I start with one element per character. Let's say the the mother. What I knew starting was that there was this woman whose son says to her, Mommy, when I grow up, I'm going to put you in the fire. So that was like the starting point for her. And I just, I write with that first impulse. And then they kind of start revealing themselves one of her sisters, the first, very first thing I knew was that she she talked to her cookies, which it kind of sounds goofy, but from an emotional perspective, for me, it's very real. Like, I know that if I have that flash in mind, I can sit and write and that that information will lead to more information. And so that's kind of what I do with every character. I start with one element and then they kind of develop and complexify as the more I write them. They need to be people that I love and they need to be people that I know are hurt. So I have to know their wounds and their um, 
what what makes them strive for happiness. If I have both of those elements, I can start writing. Would you say that you're an intuitive writer? Because I would say that about half of the people probably that I speak to who are writers say that they know what they're writing. They pre-plan it, which I always find hard to relate to. But would you say that you find your characters and your story as you go? Very much so. Yes, uh, it's part of what makes writing so appealing to me. It's kind of um, not a detective work, but if I know everything before starting, why why do it? The discovery process of writing I find very interesting. And I always keep in mind that I think that people are interested by people. So to me to like give fully fleshed characters is often and sometimes enough to make a play interesting. If the people in it are fascinating, the people watching it will be fascinated. So that's... That's what I aim for. Liana, what did you think of the play when you first read it? Or did you get to see it on stage first? Because I was based in Toronto for a long time, but now I'm in Vancouver. I read it first. I try to go see things from the Francophone community whenever I can. But this one I read and it was, uh, how do you even describe it? It was extraordinary because you can see the imprint of its instincts in the script, but also structurally in terms of that lattice work of intention and the setup and payoff that he was able to create, that instinct seems to be bound in these hoops of authorial kind of intention and intelligence. So it doesn't seem like just this amorphous mess that came out of nowhere, you know, that it's not that kind of instinct. It's the marriage of instinct and just this laser sharp focus on dramatic structure. I understand that Wildfire was inspired by a Greek tragedy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, from Greek tragedies in general. I was also questioning uh, heredity just before writing the play. I was doing my uh, um, travail genealogique. So I was like going... Genealogy, yeah. Yeah, of my own family and everything and just trying to see what happened to the people that lived before me and what was I carrying in my genes. And that exercise was very scary. (laughs) (laughs) And that kind of brought me to the Greek tragedies also, because I thought, what is it to live with this fatum or this feeling of being like condemned and not being capable of escaping one's destiny? So that kind of, that's what brought me to the Greek tragedies. And then these enormous destinies but I chose to put them with very like, quote unquote, small and ordinary people, because these are not heroes, but they have heroic lives. And I was very interested by that because I think that every story deserves to be told and every life is worth being examined and is worthy of the word colossal. So that's kind of what led me to writing that. This play made me think about how my grandmother's mother died when she was a baby and how that probably informed how she mothered my mother and she mothered me and now I'm a mother. And I just wonder, did you find yourself thinking about your own family history when you were writing this? Um, I did not bring them in directly. Like these are not their stories because they did not ask to have a public 
existence and I chose to be a playwright, so I never bring them in directly. I think authors are sponges. So, of course, like they brought me up, my parents and their parents, and I, I am part of a lineage that I cannot escape. And which is fine because they, they gave me like tremendous gifts also. And I'm probably able to have this imagination and this career in writing because they've always allowed me to escape reality, I guess, <laughs> which has become very beneficial in my life. But it's not their story specifically, but I think every family has trauma. And I, I am interested by how trauma, the domino effect of trauma. And also by not going too frontally with my own family is a way to allow myself to have more freedom in the writing. Because then I don't have to be prisoner of, will they be upset? Am I revealing too much? Since it's not their story, it can more easily become everybody's story, I hope. How about you, Liana? Uh, sure. I mean, I'm adopted and I was talking about genealogical research. I've been going on a journey and that notion of fate and choice is very close to me. I don't accept that everything is determined by blood, but I know that also you, you are imprinted with your family's past in one way or another. And just like Oedipus being plucked in, up and, and put into another family does not take that away. Um, so there were things about this play that spoke to me. There were things that I wanted to disagree with, but yet I recognized the author's point of view and, and I, I just engaged with it right away. And I think one of the gifts for me of this kind of heightened language and this linguistic precision and structural precision is precisely that it allows you to engage with these people as humans without getting so sucked into the that particular drama that you can't see um, the larger kind of context where, oh yeah, this is everybody's family. This is not everything in Quebec theatre is about les belles soeurs, but this is like a surreal belle soeur to begin with. You know, there are relationships to your family my family and everybody's family. I'm glad you mentioned the heightened language because I do think it protects us a little bit from the the darkness of the story and uh, what these characters find themselves facing. And when Chris and I decided that we wanted to record this show for Play Me and we would tell people about it, you know, the the plot can sound bleak, but we're like, no, trust us. It's it's kind of like a fairy tale. Um, there are dark moments, uh, but it's it, it's very funny and it's in many ways it's hopeful. Yeah, it's it's fun. And, and the dark, the dark humor not only spoke to me, but is very much part of my family. And I think there's a there's a gallows humor. You know, uh, I noticed I, I've seen four productions of this now uh, or, or elements of their four productions. There's been there's been one in Germany that I didn't see. I think it's been translated into Ukrainian. But um, wherever I go, the, the audience spends the first few minutes going, is it OK to laugh at this? because that's pretty sad or that's pretty dark. And you're kind of going, yes, it is. And yes, it's totally okay to laugh because the author has created that space for you to go, okay, yes, this is like my life. And it's also really funny. <laughs> well, there's no question that this play features some lonely characters. And we have certainly been in a time of loneliness, of um, isolation over the last few years. I wondered, 
Do you feel this story resonates more now? Well, probably. There is this central aspect of connection in the play that, of course, resonates completely differently now. And I have to admit, retrospectively, it has been taking off since the pandemic in kind of a different way. Because the, the, the very first draft was written in 2009. And then the, it was created in 2016, I think, here in Montreal in, in French. And it has been produced and uh, translated in uh, Germany, in English, in um, Spanish and in Ukrainian. And there has been productions here and there, but... Here in Canada, like we did the show in Toronto in June of 2000, was it 22? Yeah. And then we just did the English version in Montreal in January of 2023. And the version in the States was also post-pandemic, if I remember well, right? The one in St. Louis? It was Louis. right before. It was it right was before, okay. January of 2020, so yeah. Oh, lucky them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But I think it is more um, the la résonance. Of the it, resonance. Yeah. The resonance of it, I think, is heightened since the pandemic. Yeah, you have these isolated little cells uh, of the play, and and even within each segment of the play, people are isolated from each other. That's the great drama, and um, the 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 triplets at the beginning, and then you have this separate couple and then this separate person at the end, they are isolated from each other. And you start to realize the ways in which we are all connected. So yeah, it's a mind trip, how much it feels like something that's been written post pandemic, and it wasn't at all. We were, we've, we've always had isolation, folks. Right. That's, that part's not new. Yeah, even the idea of three triplets living together in a triplex right next to each other, but never actually seeing each other <laughs> in person feels very relatable right now. Mm -hmm. We're in a time when we can get together after largely not being able to for the last three years. And yet I think many of us have gotten out of the habit of that in-person connection. We're mm -hmm. working from home, a lot of us, or um, mm -hmm. connecting and meeting over Zoom. It, it still feels like an isolating time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And which is what is so lovely about getting to do live theater again. Mm -hmm. That has been one of my, my biggest pleasures to, to unite audiences and just to see people receive a work of art at the same time together because like we had this weird zoom experiences with theater and everything and they were fine because they, they kept us going and creating and kept us like creatively alive when we were all isolated but this coming back to the theater is almost sacred or i really really enjoy it i've been enjoying it all my life of course but there is something more uh, precious now yeah, and I think that's why this piece was a wonderful one for really the Factory Theatre in Toronto to come back to live performance. And also, I think I'm really excited about this audio version because there will be an intimacy in experiencing that sense of isolation just through your, your headphones or your earbuds. And at the same time, there was an intimacy, a shared intimacy in the theatre as people were laughing away and going, is it okay to laugh at this? We were all kind of feeling it out with each other. Is it okay that I'm laughing at this in front of you? Oh, you find it funny too. Oh yeah. I forgot that we all are the same 
species. You know, people were discovering each other and the collective experience together through this play. David, your play premiered in English at the Factory Theatre in Toronto in 2023. And I understand recently that the English version was on stage in Montreal, marking the first time that your work has been presented in English in your hometown. And I guess I wonder, do you notice a difference between Anglo and Francophone audiences? Um, oh, what a risky question, but I am going to answer it. <laughs> and, I'm, and I might be wrong. And if I am, and if I offend people, I'm very sorry. There is a bit more of political correctness on the English side, I feel. So this, can I laugh, was maybe a bit more um, present on the English side. And we did like, had a couple of decisions where as Liana was translating it, that we were, can, can this go by on the English side or not? And so we did have decisions that we thought, let's be a bit more careful, uh, responding to a lot of feedback that we did get. And so I did feel like the parts of the play that are a bit harsh or trashier, I did feel like the audience on the English side thinking, can we laugh? Is this wrong? What's going on? I don't know how to react, which is a state of mind that I'd like to create in the work. Because then you have to ask yourself and ask other people, okay, what's the limit? What's okay? What's not okay? Who decides what's okay and what's not okay? So that was here in Montreal. I thought that that was very interesting because it was also the same, the same um, mise en scène, the initial mise en scène of Philippe Cyr. So it was like the same work, the same music, the same movements and everything, but with new actors, with Anglophone actors. So it was now really a question of it was almost the same production, just in English. So the this, the reactions were really based upon the the audience and not the production because the production can change everything obviously so that was very interesting and but also it it was it's the same ride i like to use the term ride because that's what it is it's like you you sit down and you're in for a ride and and the major parts of it was was almost all the same almost that's a really interesting point about the two audiences. And it makes me think about how a translator is not just adapting the words from one language to another, but that the translator is also responsible for understanding the culture of the audience for which it's being translated. I have a responsibility. I'm not just Google Translate. And part of my responsibility is to be a cultural translator. And you just realize that different communities are having different conversations. And that, for example, I would say that I'm a a huge believer that you have to respect your audience. I don't think you just get to say whatever you want in a really irresponsible way. And I don't feel that authors like David do that. But there's a dialogue in Quebec around okay, if people are speaking in an objectionable way, do you have the right to portray them as they are? Or do you need to protect audience members from harm or discomfort? Or, you know, do you have the right to do a drive-by? I frequently compare it to a drive-by. For me, in a play, if people are speaking in a way that is not necessarily, I took cultural studies as a PhD, you know, if like I come from a working class, small Ontario village, People talk the way they talk, and I don't judge them for that. 
on the other hand, if you're on the receiving end of some of that language and you're sitting in a theater, it's like you're walking down the you paid, you're sitting there, you're, you're walking down the sidewalk in your nice shoes and your nice coat and somebody drives by and splashes you with mud and you're going, what the heck? Mm. You know, what did I do? So, so there's that dialogue going on around, oh, are you judging the people are on stage, the people from this community who don't come from the same background as you? Versus if I'm sitting in the audience, I don't deserve to have this drive by where people are using language that is kind of directed at me, you know? So that's just one example of the kind of thing where you don't judge the writing. You understand that if you're a, a Francophone Quebec audience member and you're going to the theater, you don't expect people to speak with a maximum amount of concern that they would not have in real life. You know what I'm saying? Whereas in the English side, we're pretty into the dialogue about our responsibility as writers to the people in the audience. We're not just up on the stage representing, we are also figuring out the impact of our words. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It does make me think about what an advantage it is to have the playwright be able to speak the language that it's being translated into so that there can be some kind of collaboration. I remember mm. talking to Michelle Rimmel, who wrote Sexy Laundry, and she's had her work translated in, in many languages, particularly in Eastern Europe. And she doesn't speak those languages, but she did say that she was able to tell a good production, even though she doesn't understand the language, just by the way the audience reacts to the play. Yeah, that's part of my job. And I think, you know, David probably will translate his own work at some point. He is super fluent and delightful in English. I think something that I bring is a knowledge of the communities that I work in, where they are in certain dialogues. And also just, you're always looking for equivalence. Part of poetry is the simile or the metaphor. Something is like something else. And that's a large part of what a theatrical or literary translator does as well. Oh, okay, if this person who is so vivid in French were speaking in my language, how would they sound? And you're not translating wildfire. You're not even translating David Paquette. You're translating Claudia, Claudine, Claudette, Caroline, Carol, and Column. And you're translating them in each moment in each scene. So you're having to keep all of those balls in the air. And I think that when you're translating toward your home language, you just have a huge toolkit compared to translating in your second language, however brilliant you are in it, which is why I never translate the other way. People ask me all the time to translate stuff into French. And unless it's an email, I say no. When you're translating somebody else's work and having to make changes and interpretations and judgment calls, I wonder uh, when that's all done, whose work is it? Is it David's work that Liana has adapted or does it become a whole new piece that was inspired by David's work? That is ever evolving. Try to name a translator of Ibsen or Chekhov, right? You can't do it. And now I think there's an appreciation of this as a craft. But to me, it's still David's play. I'm an interpreter the same way the actor is an interpreter, the same way the director is an interpreter. I'm interpreting his work, but it's his work. I'm also a playwright, and I, I know darn well there's a real difference in terms of that creative pulse, that creative center comes from him. And I am looking at how to, to transmit. 
I did one translation to French once. I brought Anna Moscovich's play In This World. I translated that in French, and that was very eye-opening for the experience of, of what it means to translate, because I naively thought, this is like probably 10 years ago, that well, there's only one way to translate because there's only one equivalent. <laughs> oh, was I wrong? And that really changed the relationship that I have with my own translators. Because I'm like, no, it, it's not an exact science. There is there is an identity behind every translator that will subjectively influence the passage to another language. And that's fine. All it needs to be is coherent in and of itself. So that that was a very uh, helpful to translate to have to do the exercise myself. Yeah, and I would say I work with you know maybe a dozen people regularly and more than that as one-offs, and it's a different experience every time. I work with writers whose English is not comfortable, and they just say you know go with God. <laughs> Here's what I think I'm saying. <laughs> Let do do what you're going to do. And then with David, it's definitely a collaboration. He will ask questions about every word if he doesn't know why that choice has been made. And it's great because it makes me my work is not just instinct. Some of that honestly some of a uh, that monologue at the end you you have to it's it's very instinct. You are plunging into yourself to find something primal but it's also very meticulous and so you should be able to justify every decision you've made and sometimes make a different one so it's great i want to talk a little bit more about the play and your writing style david i noticed that you really walk a lovely edge between darkness and comedy in this piece it could be a depressing play just based on the things that happen to the characters um, but it isn't. It's it's joyful and funny and surreal. And I just wonder how you go about balancing the light and the dark in your work. I try to keep in mind why I use humor, because this humor has a purpose. It's not just, oh, I want it to be funny because being funny is more fun. And it's not that. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's it, There's this... Um, francophone director called André Brassard, who passed away not that long ago. I'm stealing this expression from him because it can't be said in a better way that humor is lubricant. It helps what's hard to receive. It will help that to get in. And so I use humor not because I want to write light plays, but because I write dark plays. And if humor is not there, it will be very depressing. And as a playwright, I want to vivify. And I think one of the best, and this is a very romantic ideal, but it's always part of what I do, is I always wish that art can amplify the feeling of being alive. And without the humor, I cannot attain that. And this humor makes the play uh fun, but it also widens the emotional specter of it. Because people sit down and they're like, oh, I guess we're going to have fun. Yay. And then the the defense mechanisms are muted or, you know, are Mm -hmm. not as big. And then you start shooting arrows of darkness and or of poetry and or of sense. And they make their way deeper into the people because they have laughed before. 
So it's kind of an invitation to come, we will have fun, but that's not all we're going to do. There's this expression I say in French, which is funambulisme émotif. <laughs> it's kind of emotional tightrope walking. And you're always on the verge of funny, not funny, funny, not funny, sad, not sad. And that's a nice place to put an audience because there's a density of emotion there. It's kind of a short play, right? It's like maybe an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and 15 minutes. But then people leave and they're like, ooh, that was a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's a full experience. Yeah, and I feel like the humor is a way that a playwright can say, trust me, I get you. I know that you came in and, and you had to rush to the theater or you carved out this time to put your headphones on even, or, you know, it's like, I get you. I don't want to sit here and be miserable either. And okay. yet let's acknowledge that there are big, scary things that happen in life. So it's a survival instinct. Humor is your first date self, right? You present your sense of humor and it's also the way that we survive. Yeah, there is this question of a dignity in humor. It is a way to, to just to make it or to reclaim a sense of power, of resistance almost mm -hmm. to say, okay, it, it's, it's like playing music when the Titanic is sinking, right? Yeah. It's like, well, I guess it's happening. It is happening. Okay, let's try and remain dignified. You're listening to Play Me and we'll be right back with my interview with David Paquette and Liana Brody. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. I feel a, a really intimate connection with these characters. And I was thinking about why that is. And I think one of the reasons is because they are telling me as an audience member the things that they don't tell each other or other people. They're confiding in me as an audience member, which makes me feel close to them. I wonder, was it a conscious choice to do that when you included the device of direct address? This decision to have them speak directly to the audience is a way to like engage. And I wanted to write something that could be autonomous in the radio, maybe. So I thought, oh, can I pull this off? Can I like write something that would require almost no change whatsoever and could be read? In radio, and apparently it worked <laughs> years, years and years later on. <laughs> but that was part of it. And also, I thought that these people are courageous in the way that they reveal themselves and they're hurt. Because that's also like kind of a political stance to take to say, we're always there showing the best versions of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And doing so, we create complexes. We're like, oh, he's so happy or, oh, she's so successful. And nobody's showing the darker, more um, shadowy side of themselves. And I thought, well, my characters will be that and that will do that. And it, it will be like a conscious decision to publicly promote vulnerability because mm. <laughs> it's everywhere, 
right? Mm -hmm. So that, that was part of it. David, you create this fantastical world where people keep pet tarantulas and talk to their cookies. It's just absurd enough and magical enough that it helps us deal with some of the heavier parts of the story and it helps draw us in. Can you talk a little bit about building this world that your characters inhabit? I think I need to escape reality a bit sometimes. And fiction is the only space of true freedom that I have found that allows me to do that. There's something maybe about being unsatisfied about us humans. We could have done anything. Anything. It was a blank space. And we did this. Like these societies in which we live and, and they're so different, but still. There's something a bit... So sometimes I think my use of surrealism comes from the feeling of being suffocated by a part of reality. And the use of surrealism, I hope, is a reminder that far and foremost, we exist in a world of possibilities more than of suffocation. I hope. And I choose to be naive. It's it's okay. <laughs> and so I think that all these fantasies of talking to cookies and everything, that's like the deeper motive. And the easier one is it's quirky and it, it's fun for the audience to say, oh, wow, okay, this is like I'm somewhere else. So what I often aim for is kind of, quote unquote, magical situations with very relatable emotions. Because they don't have the same reflexes as us in this world, in these characters. But they are inhibited by the same emotional impulses as us. They want to be happy. And they try to be happy, but they're just like maybe more creative <laughs> in the way that they aim to attain that happiness. And it, it also, as a writer, it keeps me happy and, and alive Because it's a very solitary job, right? Like I spend my days with imaginary people, <laughs> which is fine. Most of them are very nice, but I have to keep it fresh. And I've found nothing more effective than just a little bit of surrealism or a little bit of offbeat people to keep it fresh. And I love, truly love in my real life, marginals. I find marginal people so interesting, so magical, so refreshing. So I think that translates in the characters I write. I want to ask you both what it's like to be a working writer. I know you are both educators as well. And a lot of people, I think, listen to this program because they're interested in writing. They're emerging or aspiring writers. And And so many people that I know feel that they have a novel in them or a short story or some poetry or a play. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what the realities are. What is it like to be a writer? Liana, I'll start with you. Um, I'm a writer, translator, actor. So I have a third of the life of a writer, I suppose. I think You're constantly looking to connect with that part of yourself that needs to connect with other people. You're constantly looking for trying to support that inner explorer. And sometimes the challenge, I think, and the thing I would say with my teacher hat on to everybody out there is write the damn novel because you're not going to be on your deathbed going, oh, I'm so glad I didn't write that novel. 
Maybe you write it and it doesn't get published. Maybe you write it and it get published and somebody in the Globe and Mail says a mean thing about it. Whatever. It's still a victory. You created something in the teeth of entropy that is a cohesive whole. You expressed yourself. And I think finding the space and the faith to feel that it's worth it is an ongoing challenge. So yeah, I have the luxury that when the writing isn't going well, I can move over to the translating, I can move over to the acting. But I have to go back and create that space, as David says, that is solitary, that you have to find the ways in which it's worth it. And one teacher that I know says, you people, write one page a day. At the end of the year, you have 365 pages. That's a novel. That's like, what, eight plays? I don't divide well. But it's about the challenge of the writing life isn't even about inspiration. It's about creating that space where that matters and believing, sometimes in the teeth of the indifference of others, <laughs> that it matters enough what you're creating there. And you have to find the joy in the process itself. You have to find your allies. And you have to find the people who remind you that, yes, if you manage to do this, it is going to matter to other people. There are other people that need to hear it. That's not really telling you I get up in the morning, I make coffee, I tie my shoes. But that's what, to me, that is the essence of the life of a writer. It is a struggle with belief as much as expression. And David? Uh, well, I agree with all of that. And I think that the the how can I say this? The purpose of the outlet needs to be defined, meaning I think if somebody ventures into wanting to write professionally and make a living out of it, I think it's a very different path than I want to write, so I'm going to write. Mm -hmm. Like that, it's kind of the difference between having like a practice or a job, like a, a meditation practice that you do because it makes you happier. It gives you mental space. It allows you to express and or communicate stuff that you find important. Mm -hmm. Nobody, nobody can um, can prevent you. Nobody can prevent you from doing that if it's a practice. That is your own and it will always be just your own. So for people who, who want to write... It doesn't have to be published. It doesn't have to make, you don't have to make money out of it. If it's only a practice, it's already yours to take. If you want to write professionally, that's a whole other question. Mm -hmm. And that is great when it works. I'm so privileged to be able to do it now. But it comes with compromises. It comes with being able or having to domesticate your impulses and negotiate with reality. Because when it becomes your way of winning your life, you have to pay rent, you have to blah, blah, blah. So you have um, deadlines and everything. And it's also a job. Mm -hmm. But I think what I really try to do right now is we should never talk about money without talking about time. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not super rich. Like, I've been doing art for 15 years now. I've been a playwright. And the past couple of years have been better. But still, like, it's not like I'm not, I don't have 
condos and blah, 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 you know. But I'm the master of my own time. I work when I want to. I get up when I want to. That is worth a lot of money. So the best thing that writing has given me is the freedom to lead the life I want to live. If I need to go to Mexico for two weeks, I can. Like, I don't have to ask anyone, except when I'm teaching. Mm-hmm. And I've started teaching. And, and I love that because now I deal with real people instead of imaginary people. Mm-hmm. And I try to reveal other dramatical universes that are not my own. So that's great, too. So, yeah, writing, I think, has the first question should be like, what shape do I want it to take? Is it a job or is it a practice? Thank you both so much. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you today. I'm so excited to get to share Wildfire with our audience and to have this opportunity to hear a little bit more about your process. Well, thank Thank you, you, Laura, a lot for your good questions and for believing in the play and having us. I'm honored to see Wildfire expand its life in English. It's so, it's, it's great. It's so much fun. So thank you very much. Thank you. That was David Paquette and Liana Brody talking about their multi-award winning play, Wildfire. Laura, I loved what they had to say about writing. It was just such a great reminder to follow through with that project, regardless of whether it's for your own enjoyment or the career path that you want to pursue. Absolutely. And I think that applies to any art form, be it painting or sculpting or whatever connects you to your artistic self. It can be so therapeutic on a number of levels. And the goal, of course, should be just to enjoy the process and and not stress about whether the product itself is good, although I know that's very hard to do. And just a reminder that you can hear the whole play anytime on Play Me. And you can hear more of our shows on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM every Sunday at 9 p.m. and Wednesday at 11 p.m. And we'll be back next with the hit solo play mixtape from writer, performer, and vocalist Zorana Sadiq. According to Zorana, sound is our first, last, and most influential sense. After all, the first thing we do in life is make sound. In her solo show, Zorana invites audience members into a personal exploration of her life experienced through sound. Zorana has curated the ultimate mixtape for life, part memoir, part scientific inquiry, and part love affair with listening. See you soon. We'd love to know what you think about Play Me. You can connect with us by emailing playme at cbc.ca. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Play Me through Google or Apple Podcasts. By subscribing, you can listen to all our past shows and you won't miss a single one of our new episodes. And while you're there, we would love it if you would consider rating and reviewing us. It helps spread the word about our podcast, bringing theatre to a whole new audience. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley in partnership with CBC Podcasts. Our associate producer is Mary Chris Rivera. A special thanks to our CBC team. Anna Ashate is our digital producer and our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. The director of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani and the executive director is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is an Expect Theatre production. 
For more information about our plays, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.